Typically Hazardous, this is Hank Fortner, and I'm so excited about this episode. And I say that all the time, but this one is truly uh, the best one that we've done live. We did it at the Bootleg Theater. And so I want to tell you a little bit about that. But first, welcome to Typically Hazardous. This episode is an extraordinary episode of an idea I had in the shower, which you will hear more about later. It is called A Pastor, A Poet, and A Rabbi. We all walked into a theater on July 12th and had a conversation about what it meant to heal the world. Now, for you and I, I need to give you a little context for what that means. That means that I flew my rabbi down from San Francisco, who's an extraordinary friend of mine. His name is Rabbi Henry Schreibman. He's very Googleable and he's amazing. I was obviously the pastor. The other guy who came in was a poet by the name of Adam, or In Q is his poetry name, which is one of the best poets I've ever heard in my life, and I couldn't believe that he sat down and did this with us. So a couple things I want to let you know about. The conversation, the only thing that I told the rabbi and the told the poet was, I want you to talk about how to heal the world. In the midst of the shootings, in the midst of the violence, in the midst of the marching and the chaos and the war, it's so obvious to all of us that we have to find a way and maybe even for some of us a new way to step into healing the world. And I love that we got to sit down from three different perspectives and three different mediums and three different mindsets and worldviews and forums to sit down and say, hey, Rabbi, how would you heal the world? Hey, Pastor, how would you heal the world? Hey, Poet, how would you heal the world? And this is what you're going to experience. Now, the thing about this is there's some explicit nature. So if you're listening to this around kids and family members, you're going to need to pay attention to the fact that there's some F-bombs, there's some stuff. I asked my guests to come and be them totally themselves. I did not edit them on purpose because I wanted it to be raw and real, and I wanted it to be as true for them as the subject matter of how to heal the world is. So if you're here and you go, hey man, I can't, really can't handle that kind of profanity, I really can't handle those kinds of words, or I don't want my kid to listen to this, then you're, I need you to skip this episode or listen ahead and rewind it. But this is an explicit episode with just a few moments that we felt really strongly that we didn't want to filter and we didn't want to sanitize in any way. So these are the raw conversations of people that I've invited to come to this place and say, how are we going to heal the world? You're going to hear things about how to heal the world. You'll hear some poems about some interactions that we have. You'll hear some Mesopotamian history throughout this thing. And then you'll hear from me, as always, something really practical that you can do at the end of this conversation. Can't wait for you to hear it. Check it out. And please enjoy Pastor, Poet, and Rabbi. You ever wonder what your life would be like? What will you wish you would have done? Get after it already. What's life without a little adventure? We get one chance. Best live a big life. The exploration of the unknown. The hope for something more. Behavior can be classified as typically hazardous. I call it an adventure. Welcome. Let's get started, shall we? Hi. Hello, everybody. Wow. Look at you. You look so good every time. Welcome to Typically Hazardous live recording. Tonight is such a special night, I can't even explain. Tonight is, uh, well, welcome. Anybody here for the first time? Wow, okay, wow. Thank you guys for being here. Anybody here and you've been to all of them? Amazing, you guys are lifers. Anybody here, you've been here another time, this is like a second time? Amazing. 
Well, thank you for being here. Again, my name is Hank, and welcome to the Typically Hazardous live recording. Tonight is a wonderful, wonderful, come to fruition moment of an idea I had in the shower. You ever have those? <laughs> Where I was like, what? I was like thinking of what I wanted to do was I wanted to make a wonderfully um, meaningful experience out of what sounded like a joke that a pastor, a poet, and a rabbi walked into a nightclub. <laughs> and we had a conversation about what to do with all the madness in the world around us. So that's what we're gonna do tonight, and I'm so glad you're here, and I'm so glad you're part of this experience with us. Uh, before I introduce our poet and our rabbi, I wanna give you a little update on what we're doing and how it's happening, and uh, maybe a little update on my life. Does anybody care about that? Yeah. Thank you, okay, good, thank you for caring. Uh, <laughs> Couple of things, uh, this is our eighth Typically Hazardous live recording, which I'm so grateful for you a part of. And you cannot know, and I mean this, you really cannot know how much it means that you're here and that you got babysitters and uh, friends and people to watch your humans that you have and, and that you drove here or Ubered here or, or shot somebody while you were parking or whatever happened to get to this place just to be here and I'm just so grateful that you came and that you're here in this place. Um, there's a couple things that are happening. I'm, uh, uh, if you didn't notice, uh, anybody ever heard of Adopt Together? Yes? Adopt Together is so fun, and this has been such an amazing month. We were listed in People Magazine as one of the, in, like a full page spread. So if you haven't seen that, I tweeted about it and Instagrammed it like a small child on Christmas. So you can find that. That was just such a huge honor to us and we loved it. Tonight is really cool because what started with the idea in the shower and then it, start, then it went with a couple of phone calls. And so I called two people. I called my favorite rabbi in the whole world named Hank and I called my favorite, one of my favorite poets that I've ever heard and one of the first guys that I ever heard uh, do spoken word poetry and was so inspiring and so talented. And I just called him and I was outside my daughter's preschool and I was just like, it would be like so awesome for us to do this together. We don't have a budget and this is a totally free event. I love you, what do you say? You know, it was a very Justin Bieber-like fan call. And uh, he said yes and so he's here tonight. So here's what I wanna do and here's how this is gonna go. We are each gonna get about 15 minutes there will be no transition between us. We're just gonna kinda of go right to it. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna introduce my poet and my rabbi, and then what's gonna happen is we're gonna start with our rabbi, and then our poet is just gonna step up, and he's gonna give us some of, of what he does, which you're gonna love, I'm positive of it. And then I'll close us out, and then there will be about five to seven minutes, depending on how much the ns happens in the room next door. We'll do some Q&A, so we'll sit up here and you can ask questions. So if you have thoughts or you have questions or you have reflective things you'd like us to ping back on, please, we want you to hold those things and we want you to, I invite you to uh, ask those there towards the end. So we have some time for Q&A until the music gets so loud or we just start partying and we just are like, this is so amazing and then everybody will all fizzle out. Does that sound good? Okay, great. You guys are amazing. So I wanna introduce, and I'm first, I'm gonna introduce my rabbi and he is just a phenomenal, wonderful, unbelievable human being. So I would love, I doubt this happens to him, although it probably happens to him when he just like wakes up in the morning. Uh, I would love for like you guys to help me give him the most rip-roarness round of applause to welcome him to the typically hazardous energy. Is that cool? Can we do that together? Okay, here we do. So this, his name is Dr. Henry Schreibman. So his name actually is Hank. And I actually met his son, who right now is on tour with Justin Bieber. I met his son through one of my other friends, and uh, he was like, dude, your name is Hank. My dad's name is Hank. 
I was like, yeah, he's like, what do you do? I was like, I'm a pastor. He's like, my dad's a rabbi. You guys are the same. And I was like, we should meet. We hung out for four hours straight at this restaurant from through the lunch hours and into the dinner hours, and we just went ahead and reordered. It was awesome. <laughs> and we just kept having just extraordinary conversations. And there's a few elements you need to know about him. He's 64 years young. He spent 20 years as a traveling mime. He used to do one-man shows in venues like this, and he was a traveling mime. Then he went through to Israel, and he studied for his rabbinic studies, and then he's been teaching in universities. He has a book on prayer that has sold internationally. Uh, The Sonoma State University, he started the Jewish studies program there. He is a rabbi at the Catholic University, Dominican University, and he teaches Hebrew, and he teaches Greek, and he teaches biblical studies there. And then in addition to that, what I find really amazing about him is that in 2013, he was listed as one of the most inspiring rabbis. Now, they choose 36, and this paper who listed him as one of the most inspiring rabbis of 2013 is a 120-some-odd-year paper that his grandmother used to read. And then a hundred some odd years later, he is listed as one of the most inspiring rabbis. And I think you'll find, just like I did, that he is one of the most inspiring, not just rabbis, but human beings. So please welcome, would you, with me, please welcome Mr. Henry Schreibman to the stage. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you for being here. You can have a seat right there. That'll be your spot. Uh, Now, for our um, second attendee, who will be over here on my other side, uh, his name is NQ. He's a National Poetry Slam champion and a multi-platinum winning songwriter. As one of the most talented poets in the country, he sold out the largest one-man poetry show in Los Angeles history and has been featured on HBO, ESPN, and Cirque du Soleil. What's amazing about NQ, aside from those things, is that he's one of the most sincere human beings. And when I first saw him do poetry at the Poetry Lounge over on Fairfax, I, my, I literally started to like shake. Like, this is so inspiring and this is so awesome. He made me both laugh and cry in the exact same set. I went to his one-man show by myself because I couldn't find a date. And I went to his one-man show by myself And I felt like I left with friends and with a community. He's so talented and so kind and has a heart of gold. Please welcome our poet, Mr. N.Q. to the stage. He's here. There he is. Dude, good to see you. Please, uh, there's a seat for you. A seat for you right here. Yep. Okay, are you guys ready? Please, give, put your hands together for the very first ever pastor, poet, and rabbi. You need the mic. <laughs> he said I was a mime, okay. How you doing? All right, so I'm from the South. South Philly. So we talk like this, you know, how you doing? How you doing? So in all serosity, I wanted to make sure that's not a word, sweetheart. <laughs> so what I wanted to make sure is that you're thinking of good questions. The good Lord doesn't need answers. The kind of answers that humans are creating right now are painful. Agreed? 
okay? Religion is not what it can be. So what I want to do is go back not 1,000 years, not... 2,000 Not... 3,000. But just about... 4,000. And when you go back 4,000 years, what you basically find is the civilizations that created the West, but they started in the East. So this division between East and West is irrelevant. Are you with me? Remember you were in sixth grade once. You remember this. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> I know like sixth grade, but I had hair. <laughs> but it wasn't straight. Big problem in the 60s. But in sixth grade, you learned about Mesopotamia. Remember? The land of the two rivers. And then below, there's the Nile, which has the delta, and then goes... So these are the core of, of Western civilization. So any theme or concern or issue that emerges in the Hebrew Bible eventually emerges in the New Testament, eventually will evolve into the Quran. So these are very close traditions, and they start in the East and move west. Well, well, well. Isn't that a different turn of events than the way we depict it in the U.S.? Like it's all about us. It started in the East, and it goes to the and Africa is actually Egypt. Now, they left that out of the books for about 200 years in American history. So when Moses wants to look for a woman, he goes east. And then he falls in love with women who are darker than he is, except he is brown himself. And then when you look at love poetry, what do you see? You see she is dark and beautiful. So it never says white skin rocks. Or is the measure of things, the measure of things. We use that as the measure of things here. It's not. So when we go back 4,000 years, absolutely the pagans, if you will, they were doing some weird things with women. And if they were doing weird things with women, they were castrating men. They were doing some very weird things with animals. And the Hebrew Bible is filled with stories about don't do what they do in nature. Do it differently, do it better. But that becomes the core of some of the nastiness in Western religion. Mine is better than yours. Are you with me? And Christianity evolves, and then it says, well, Judaism, we got over that. Circumcision, forget about it. Pork, gotta eat that. Jesus wouldn't. <laughs> He's like, I gotta eat some pork, man. Okay. There's now a pork burger. It's like, really? We've never had more Muslims in America. We have about six million or so Muslims that'll come out and be honest about it. And there are about six million or so Jews. So you got at least 12 million people who don't want to eat pork, but now we have pork burgers. So we've got a strange perception in the West of how and where we come from. So the notions of the God of love that goes past life into the life after is an Egyptian North African concept. Can I get a hmm? Mm. And that's where the love theme starts. The judgmental theme, reward, punishment, hell, all of those concepts emerge from Mesopotamia. Why? Because the weather is rougher there. It's a rough, it's rough weather. Right? You'll be down from the islands, you're not worrying about it. Everybody loves you, don't show up in time, and everybody's still going to be fine. Yeah? Right? So that's Egypt. 
Mesopotamia has the Zagros Mountains, it's where the Tigris and Euphrates are, storm systems, and random flooding. So that's where you get thematically the reward and punishment aspects in the Hebrew Bible. Can you get it, huh? All right, so now you see where I'm going. So when you have a theme like the pastor Hank, and you ever call me Hank, I'll kill you. Um, <laughs> do I look like a Hank? And I'm sorry I'm not wearing something black. I know that's very un... Just, it's like, I'm sorry. Is there like a forgiveness section? You know, like, Father, forgive me, I didn't wear 72% black and I visited LA. <laughs> I mean, even my friggin' socks aren't black. What the hell? Okay. So now you can see thematically that the climate and the environment of the East and North Africa had deep influence on the Hebrew Bible. So when the pastor comes up with an idea of how to fix the world, guess where that theme begins? To some degree in Mesopotamia. It gets its legs 2,000 years later during the time of the rabbis, which would be the time of Jesus as well. And then it gets another shot in the arm in the 1500s. And I'm going to take you along on this notion of how to fix the world. Deal? So, you go back to your sixth grade and you stop and think, you learned the Gilgamesh epic, right? Grunt if you remember the Gilgamesh epic. Uh, Schreibman, thank you. Okay. There's an epic that goes back 4,200, 300, 400, about three or 400 years before the Hebrew Bible even was conceptualized. Judaism's about 4,000 years old. You get that, right? Okay. So the Gilgamesh epic has a hero. His name is? I love this group. I'm telling you, baby. So you have the Gilgamesh epic, and the hero is Gilgamesh. And he has this wild, hairy, crazy friend named Enkidu. And he brings him out of the wild and wants to civilize him. And along the process, he dies. And then he goes on this eternal search for what happens after we die. Why are humans mortal? And this is before the Hebrew Bible. Just say that with me. Before the Hebrew Bible. So the Jews didn't create that. They evolved the concepts. But what's powerful is, look at this strand. This particular strand is the one that you think you're made in the image of God. Now, I far to prefer to, that God would have hair like that versus that or this. <laughs> Your mother may not like it, but that's her problem. Okay. <laughs> She's saying, I like it. Okay. All right. So are you with me? Watch what happens. Gilgamesh, when he's created by the gods, is one-third and two-thirds, which is the divine and which is the animal human. Two-thirds, one-third, one-third, two-third. I don't answer my own friggin' question. <laughs> Pardon? He's two-thirds divine. How many of you are thinking... The opposite, two-thirds human. Come on, get honest. They have no hands in the back. It's frightening. So that strand that we just looked at, which is 2,000 years older than the 
the, let's say, the writing of the Hebrew Bible, that becomes humans made in the image of God. You've read that, right? Twice in the opening of Genesis, it talks about man and then man and woman being made in the image of God. And it's not about color. And it's not about gender. It's made in the image of God, meaning it's not physical. Because if you go into a synagogue or you go into a mosque, this is what you look at. Nothing. Right? No images. The God with no images. Christianity, under the influence of Rome, has sculptures, pictures, images. Okay. It's trying to blunt my idea. So, if you're made in Mesopotamia, in paganism, two-thirds divine and one-third human, that's part of the solution of how to fix the world. Let me take you the next step. If God's going to create the world and God is everything, then how was there room for you? How the hell did that happen? Stop and think about it. God is the universe, and it says, God created in the beginning the heavens and the earth, meaning God went... So if God went... and material is fixed, and God is universal, then the rabbi said about 2,000 years ago, God had to step back. God had to make tzim tzum. Help me? Tzim tzum. Pull in. So if God, the power of the universe, creates by making yourself smaller, that's the second piece of tikkun olam, to fix the world. Can you say that in Hebrew? Tikkun olam. Olam means universe. Time and space. Time and space. Uncle Einstein figured that out later. But olam is time and space. Space is this. Time is what's happening between us now. Sacred time is very valuable for us. You brought that. He brought that. He brings that. You bring it. So now, here's another piece. How many of you have a talent that you can barely explain, but you're just good at it? What is it? Poetry. Yeah, man. Can I get a, can I get a hell yeah? Hell yeah. Yeah, all right. <laughs> and you? Photography. Photography. Can everybody turn to somebody and say what your God-given gift is? Don't, no false modesty here. Because you know there are things that you and I do that have nothing to do with our family biology, our biography, nothingology, nothing. Just turn to somebody and say what that God-given thing is and let the other person speak first. All right, don't get too close. <laughs> don't get too close. All right, here we go. Okay, so. She didn't care about the doctorate. She didn't care about the best rap. I like the way he whistles and he didn't spit on me like my brother. 
And what gift do you have other than blurting? <laughs> Writing. Writing. You know, there are things we have that we did nothing. I call this unrequited good. There's no reason you have it. Your parents go, I don't know how you got that, but you better be a doctor, whatever, they, you know, whatever they're pushing on you today or then. So that's the other piece. This piece is that somewhere in the 1500s, Rabbi Isaac Luria called the Aryeh. Ah, bam. I'm not going to drop the microphone. Don't be scared. That was a good microphone drop moment. His name was the lion, the lion of God. He said, wait a minute. The reason you and I have random pieces of spark of the divine is because when God pulled back, God had to pull back and the vessels got broken. Kalim Shvurim, the broken vessels. So all that light that God pulled out of the original creation ended up flying into the universe and you got pieces of it. And yours is? Words. I'll shut up and let's all do some poetry. Okay? Because words can kill, as we've seen this week and last week and the week before and the last five years in Syria. Right? We just keep going back and back, back, right? This is a dark time. I don't mind calling it a dark time. Because if you don't call it what it is, you can't bring the light. Right? It was, well, we had a terrible killing and, and a black policeman and a white policeman, they're talking together. That lasts for about three seconds in the news cycle, and then we go on. Yes? So this is God's valuable moment. When we call it dark and bring forth the light. Deal? All right. So here's the formula. You and I, no matter what color, race, religion you are, do seem sum. Pull yourself in. Don't say everything that's on your mind. We have political figures on the right that do it and on the left that do it. And I'm going to test you later. <laughs> Seriously. This far surmounts the problem of politics. in them. Show restraint. When you're falling in love, you know you can scare your lover away if you come on, oh my God, I've never been wanted like this before in my life. <laughs> And, and you turn around, and I'm so happy you're here in my... He's gone, she's gone, all three of them are gone. Everybody's gone, right? You scared them away? Right, but that leg thing? I just wanted you to know the whole time we were eating together, I've been shaking my leg, I was so excited. All right, shut up. Humans, show tzimtzum. What's the word? And take your light that the good Lord gave you and don't flee from it. You may not make money doing it. Wah, wah, wah. But if you can bring joy, great, great things can happen. All right? You fill in the blanks. You know, right? I could go here. I want to know what you do because then you can be recruited to do it. But you know the moments when you have to step in. Never miss a moment to interrupt a biased or uncivil conversation. You be the agent of shalem. Be full. Remember how full this room is right now of the potential and the light? You be the one who says, I don't talk about black people that way. I don't talk about white people that way. I don't talk about people 
who are different than me. I talk about people. And you be the one where everyone, instead of the yelling and the pissing match that goes back and forth, applauding and cursing, and you be civil. Say, I see value in your position, and I listened to you, and I heard you say, but I'm thinking, I don't want this to escalate into an uncivil conversation. And I got news for you. There have been periods in history where Jewish lives mattered, and everyone was silent. The British, the Americans, they didn't fight that war for the Jews any more than Lincoln fought it to free the slaves. Right? You read a little history. Yeah. So the punchline is, right now, black lives matter. And if you can't say it with your teeth smiling, then there's something wrong with your social justice radar. And you have to know that Muslim lives matter. Okay? And then, and then hold your breath, keep your stupid mouth shut, and then you can say everybody else's life matter to yourself in the shower. <laughs> Do you understand why I'm saying that? Because if you don't, all you hear is, well, they sort of matter, but everything is everything. Right? Everything is not everything. There are urgencies in life. And this is an urgent, dark moment. All right. So, when you're feeling hot under the collar, right now, go out into nature. If you can love animals, you can love yourself. If you don't love yourself, then you're not going to be comfortable with other people's history and other people's worldview, and other people's religion. So Rabbi Hillel said in the time of Jesus, all by himself, Im ain anili mili. If I am not for myself, who's going to be for me? So learn about who you are and how to express what you are with pride, but not that artificial pride. Artificial, where you're pushing yourself on somebody. The comfortable pride where you can hear somebody else's trouble. Then Rabbi Hillel said, Im ani ami, ma'ani. If I'm only for myself, then tell me, what am I? A narcissistic son of a bitch. <laughs> right? I mean, he doesn't answer that. Right? The rabbi talked with, you know, asking good questions, right? So don't be that narcissistic. You know, it's not all about you, even though your mother told you this is all about you. It's not. Okay? It's about the other Get yourself together. Know who and what you are. Learn about your origins. Be proud of them, but don't be supercilious. Don't be, well, I got, I'm white. Shut up. So, and the final one is, if not now, when? In other words, don't wait. Tonight, you go to a bar, you hear some idiot spouting. You don't get into a fight. Do I look like I fight? <laughs> the power of the word. Spoken word. Do I have enough time for a little midrash? All right. He's just being nice to the Jewish guy. So when you share your sparks, which broke from the original divine light, and I'm not being modest about that, that's you. Let's look around at some of it. This is God's image. Look, look, 
Don't look at me. Look at them. This is God's image. This is precious. A room of 250. Damn. So that's random goodness, and guess what that does? It puts out random evil and dark. The light always wins on the dark. So in this dark generation, that increases the search for light. So again, 2,000 years ago, the rabbis had a parable. Now you've heard Jesus speaks in parables, right? Some of you are Christian, I heard. (laughs) So, So when you hear it said that Jesus speaks in parables, it means he's teaching midrash. In other words, analogous stories. So there's a wonderful animal fable. You may remember Aesop's fables just like you didn't remember Gilgamesh. <laughs> oh, yeah, after the rabbi said that. I know Aesop's fables. I come here all the time, yeah. Hank rocks. <laughs> okay, so, so the punchline is, it's called the fox and the fish. It's called the? Fox and fish. So, Rabbi Akiva, who came to his faith at 50 years old, is preaching in public, and the Romans are crucifying people. Now, you and I as Christians think Jesus was the only one to get crucified. They were knocking off between eight and 10,000 Jews a year, especially around Passover, because that was the Jewish New Year then. So they would line the streets with people crucified. And people crucified would last three days, and they would talk about their regrets, what they thought, right? So, so this was a wonderful deterrent to keep the Jews down. And the Romans uh, were there for about three or 400 years after the time of Jesus as well. So Akiva is out there preaching in the public, teaching Torah, and there's a ban against teaching. And one of his students, Rav Papas, a highly assimilated rabbi with a Greek name, turns and says, wait a minute, rabbi, how could you be teaching in public? This is, this is threatening your life. And Akiva says, let me tell you a parable. Let me tell you a midrash. It's about the? And the? So the fish are observed in the river, and they're swimming back and forth, desperate. You've seen fish when they look desperate. Sometimes they're just like... (laughs) But they're darting back and forth. So the fox goes... How are you down there? How is it that you are moving back and forth so desperately? You must be very fearful. And the fish go, nope, we're okay. He says, let me tell you a story. This is the story within the story. He says, you don't know about the time, not 1,000 years ago, not, not, but maybe even when our ancestors used to live on land together. So why don't you come out here on land? You won't have to dart back and forth, and we can be as one as our ancestors were historically. And the fish go back and forth, and in one voice they say, you're not as smart as you think you are, mister. And they say, if we're in our own environment, Eretz Yisrael, and the Romans are coming here and telling us we can't teach in our own public places, how much more so are we in danger if we come into your place? So the best thing that's happening in this dark, dark night 
which humans have come through before and will be fine with people like you and others you can infect with this light is that you have people of color and not color who don't care about color and who are listening to religion work well and the beautiful sounds of poetry and they're seeking the light and that is infectious wherever there is dark. No danger. Thank you. Over there. Yep. In cue, ladies and gentlemen. Language is a trip. Isn't it so amazing? I'm just making sounds and yet you understand what I am saying. Like I can say balloon and you can see one in your mind. Or I can say the moon and you picture how it shines. Or I can bring your focus to the feeling in your spine and just by your attention, energy can start to climb. I can even get more abstract and make you think of time the way it passes through an hourglass before our very eyes. Really, I'm just choosing words in different orders in a line. It's amusing when you view it from a distance, which is fine. <laughs> Mostly we're in conversations or in conversations in our heads, so we don't acknowledge all the crazy shit that's being said, but crazy shit is being said. And just because it's not said out loud does not mean that it won't affect how you perceive the world around you. We are the architects and builders of reality. So it's helpful to admit that almost everything is fallacy. We get to choose our lives. And the words we use describe to others how we fuse our lives. I could give you gifts of wisdom or resort to throwing knives, but the choice is only mine when I remember there are sides. History is full of people pimping pretty words for profit inciting hate and violence, and our silence didn't stop them. It was what we did and what we said that changed the way our leaders led, and millions bled, protecting a freedom we're now abandoning. What do you believe in? Do you even understand it, damn it? Was it passed on through generations as our parents planned it? Are you really you, or are we arguing semantics? You're the echo of a former truth, although that seems romantic, and it pains me that we take for granted our greatest attribute, the right to be ourselves without apology is absolute. The right to speak our minds. The right to change our minds to not be locked behind the bars of a dollar sign. The right to free our minds, but not to be our minds, to step outside of ourselves so we can see our minds. See, I refuse to be afraid of my fears. I tried using cheap fuel, but that barely got me here. And since what got me here won't get me there, I own what I'm scared, then clone it till it multiplies a thousand times and disappears. A bunch of sharks circling the last musical chair. So let my enemies beware. I would rather be aware. I don't care how rich you are or what you own or what you've done. I care about the way you treat the people that you say you love. I care about the way you treat the people you will never love there is no one you're below and there is no one you're above <laughs>
People kill over the lives they hold like lifelines in their lifetimes because they can't see the sea beyond the waves that block their sight lines. They die over the lives they hold like lifelines in their lifetimes because they can't see the sea beyond the waves that block their sight lines. They kill and die over the lies they hold like lifelines in their lifetimes because they can't see the sea beyond the waves that block their sight lines. And that's why poets write rhymes. We're harnessing the storm. Humanity would only need to look to nature to conform. It destroys and it creates, it destroys and it creates, it destroys and it creates, but it doesn't take more than it needs. It doesn't bleed more than it feeds. It fights for life and then it leaves. It's sad, I barely even pay attention to the trees. They grow without being self-conscious of their leaves. They twist and turn, branching out to reach the sun. And they don't consider how they look to me when they are done. Plus, their roots communicate, so they're separate, but they're one. They're probably screaming at me right now. They think I'm deaf and dumb. But I haven't learned the language. Damn, there it goes again. Can you believe that you just understood every word I said? (laughs) You guys feel good? Say yeah. Say that shit like you mean it. Say, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Mm. Mm. That was called silence. It's a poem I wrote. (laughs) Took me my whole life to be able to write that. You know, I meditate a lot, like twice a day, you know? People used to say, you should meditate. And I'd be like, yeah, meditation, get the fuck out of here. You should really fucking meditate, guys. What are we doing here, really? The whole life is about letting go. All we're doing is just continuing to let go of things. Eventually, we let go of everyone we love, everything we love. We let go of our bodies. We let go of our identities. We don't know where we come from. We don't know where we go. Not really. Or do we? I was going through airport security. This is literally four days ago. Going through airport security. The guy pulls me out of line. He says, excuse me, sir. <laughs> he said, I'm going to have to pat you down. Our machine says that you have an anomaly in your groin. And I was like, you have no idea. 
I didn't say that. That would have been weird. What I said was even worse. I swear to God, I said this to him. He goes, you have an anomaly in your groin. And I said, I assure you I do not. <laughs> assure you. I don't even say that. I don't even talk like that. You know how you talk different in different situations? All of a sudden, like, words come out. You're like, I wouldn't even use that word. One time I was going through airport security, and they stopped me. They said, sir, let me look through your bag. They took out a hummus. I had hummus. They said, you can't bring this through. It's a liquid. I said, it's hummus. They said, sir, you can't bring this through. It's a liquid. I said, it's hummus. I assure you, it's hummus. No, I didn't say that. They said, you can't bring it through. I said, I swear, this is what I said to him. I said, do you think that this says Hamas? He did not find that funny at all. I should probably do a poem now. <laughs> oh, man. I want to say one more thing. Okay. I was going to Europe. I went to Europe recently. Europe is incredible. And uh, I want to say Europe is incredible for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons it's incredible is because you can go a very short distance and you're in a totally different country. Different language, different culture, different architecture, different history, different style, different food. Everything is different. And it's very hard to be self-important when you can just hop on a train and be in a completely different culture. It's also very hard to be self-important when you're standing next to something that's 5,000 years old. We don't have that here. We're like a young country. There's amazing things that come from that. Amazing things. But we're also like a fucking teenager, man. And nobody likes teenagers. Not even teenagers. I got jokes, Kev. <laughs> All right. I haven't done this in a really long time, but I think it's appropriate. I've never written a piece about peace. From the violence in the Middle East, I've watched catastrophes repeat, but who am I to comment on your grief? When I haven't known the depths of your experience or your beliefs, it's easy when I say to turn the cheek because all I have to do is speak and talk is cheap. It's harder when you've had to watch your back while walking down the street. And once you've been attacked, you see a threat in everyone you meet. You break a sweat and your ears can hear your hearts beat, 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 beat. No matter what side you're on, the history is deep and yet we pray to different gods to get the very same relief. So at the risk of coming off like I'm trying to preach, I thought that I should offer my perspective at the very least. Everywhere's a temple. Everywhere's a church. Everywhere's a mosque. Just show me where it hurts. 
everywhere is sacred, so anywhere can work. Because when aliens arrive, we'll be human beings first. We are human beings first. We are human beings first, beyond the boundaries in the dirt. So how we treat each other should be how we measure our worth. And finding peace is not an external search. Forgiveness is a choice, and it's as much for those who've gotten hurt than those that did the dirt. You're holding on to chains and complaining that your hands are locks. Open up your hand and watch the weight used to carry drop. All this hatred has to stop. The universe is infinite and we're a tiny dot. Imagine Earth through the perspective of an astronaut. We're chasing after God. Chasing after, chasing after God. Just be still and you'll remember God is in your heart. Every person you encounter is a work of art. You want to change the world, change yourself and it will start. Make a shift and everything around you takes part or gets taken apart. Mother nature can be ugly and father time is endless. Your enemy is a mirror if you are willing to be fearless. You could be holding the gun that's pointing at yourself. You could be dropping the bomb that's landing on your house. And I'm not saying don't protect yourself. Protect yourself. But know that revenge is against yourself. Identity is just a temporary shell. My unconscious mind perpetuates my hell beyond the circumstances themselves. And I don't claim to understand the circumstances themselves. But what I know is once we're here, we have to play the hands that we've been dealt. It doesn't help me blaming someone else or feeling sorry for myself or using God as an excuse to kill at will because he's on my side. God is on my side. God is on my side. Like God would choose a side against another side when he is every side. If we took all the energy we spent on waging war and put it into solving our disputes instead of making more, then maybe we could fix the problems that we think we're fighting for and soldiers wouldn't have to live and die in a revolving door. What are they falling for? What are we standing for? As above, so below. Holding space is the most important way for giving other people room to grow. Watch what you assume to know. Take it in, but don't take it on or you'll respond by taking people personal. Tell your truth and let it go. By letting go of truth, you never know how someone else's truth can then affect your soul. Because once the conflict has started, I forget the goal. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I'm just a part in a larger whole, and everything I'll ever love disintegrates to dust. So I'm the only one I'll have to learn to trust. Finding peace without war would be hard enough. It's not us versus them. It's us versus us. I told you he was good. Man, man, I almost feel like, uh, what is there left to say? 
so many wonderful, insightful, beautiful things came out of these two men's mouths, and I'm so grateful for it. But I want to take a moment and take my moments um, to invite you to join me in healing the world, because I want to be a part of healing the world. How about you? And everywhere I look and every time I uh, see the scenarios that are happening, what I'm aware of keenly is that we are a part of what Carl Jung called the collective unconscious. Because if it's not black lives matter, as Rabbi reminded us, there was a time when Jewish lives matter. And there was a time in this country where Japanese lives mattered. And there was a time in this country where after we, get, after we solve this and when the next president figures out how to get this all figured out, however she decides to do it, what we're gonna do, what we're gonna do is we're gonna find another issue. We're gonna get through this issue and then we're gonna realize that actually the next thing we have to worry about is the wage gap. And then after that, we're gonna figure out about upward mobility and economic mobility and we're gonna talk about the, the, the distance between the rich and the poor and the disparity. We are always going to find an issue. We are always gonna find things that constantly need to be done because like Q said, we're just teenagers. We're always gonna be at work. The key is not to burn through all of your Facebook friends while you're trying to solve the problem we're facing right now. Because what happens is then we all just wanna escape, don't we? Does anybody else need a break? I think that's why we're all playing Pokemon Go, don't you think? (laughs) Because you're like, I don't want to open up this app and see another shooting. I don't want to do another thing. I've unfriended all of my friends, and I can't figure out how I'm friends with so many Republicans and so many mad people and so many, and there's all these things that start to happen. You just go, I just want to catch a ride or could I just catch like a... And there's one over in the alleyway on your way out if you want to grab it. But... But we are doing what Carl Jung described as, as the collective unconscious. These collective unconsciousness is what's driving the madness that we're facing. There wasn't a scenario somewhere in a room where everybody decided this is how we're gonna feel about Jews. Oh, we're gonna sit in a room and decide this is how we're gonna all feel about black people. This is how we're gonna all feel about white people. Or here's how we're gonna all feel about rich people. And I had that in my mind. Anybody like Larchmont? You know, when I was 22 and broke, I used to watch Larchmont and walk around and go, look at all these rich bastards. That's literally what I would say in my mind. And two weeks ago, I was walking with my daughter and my wife, pushing a stroller, and looking around and realizing, oh no, I'm that rich bastard. (laughs) And I'm not that guy. I'm not rich, you know me, but I'm in the midst of the moment where I'm becoming that thing that I judged because the reality is we're just gonna keep finding another one. See, these collective unconsciousness are actually wars that never end. Because a collective unconscious doesn't change because you yell louder or you use more hashtags or you march. Those things are important. Those things are necessary for the evolution of a society, but that's not what shifts a collective unconscious. Do you know what shifts a collective unconscious? It's the evolution of the individual. It means that as individuals, we have to go back to doing this crazy ancient thing all of us in this room, you have the capacity not to shout louder or make the right video or do the right thing that gets everybody to decide, yeah, we just need to stop this. Yeah, we should all just get rid of our guns or you're not gonna do one thing that's gonna cause all this collective unconscious to shift because guess what? When you push against something, what does it do? It pushes back. 
So what has to happen is from the inside, it's the invitation to heal the world through an evolution, through a growing, through a, an uplifting, and this happens through this ancient practice. We've almost in, entirely lost it as a people. The only people I know who talk about it are uh, people in AA. We've lost this practice of confession and amends. See, what's interesting about confession as amends is it's step eight and nine if you're in recovery and you start to realize that what you've done throughout your life and especially with all the dysfunction in your life, you found a way to hurt other people, you found a way to cut other people and you found a way to, to cause harm to other people and the way that you heal is that you go around and ask forgiveness and confess that you broke it and you make amends to a person and it heals you. It changes you. In the book of James, Chapter five, verse 16. It's James who says this. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That a healing happens among a people that we actually change independently. We change a collective when we start to look around and go, where have I caused harm? Where have I hurt? Who have I hurt? What prejudices do I have? I have prejudices. I have to start by confessing and saying, I have prejudice. You know, I catch myself being a sexist. I really do. It was one of the first arguments my wife and I had when we were engaged. Because I answered the question on the little questionnaire that she would take care of the home and I would go work. Mmm, that was a really weird week. <laughs> and if you know my wife, you know she looked at me and she said, no, we will not. <laughs> I catch myself being a sexist. I catch myself thinking that this is my job as a man and this is my job as a dad and this is her job as a woman. And then I go, what am I thinking? And even though the values that I have is that she's smarter than me and she's more powerful than me and she elevates above me, I still catch myself doing that. I catch myself with prejudices. I catch myself paying attention to people when they're in hoodies and what color their skin is and how I react. I first have to start by confessing things and then I have to find those people in my life and make amends. It's actually a really uh, heinous practice. It's exhausting. But you make a short list of the people that you may have hurt or may have wounded and what happens is you move us forward and you heal and we heal and then we continuously heal because it doesn't start by saying, well, who have I been prejudiced against? You might be in the room and you go, well, I have, I'm not prejudiced but I'll find, I'll find a person that I maybe had a prejudice against and I'll, and I'll, I'll see if I can make amends. It might be that you have a racial prejudice, that it's time to find that person in your life and say, I've been prejudiced, I wanna make amends. But it might just be anyone in your life. See, we don't figure out how to make amends to people who are gay or people who are black or people who are rich or people who are poor or people who are different than us or vote different than us or say things that upset us. We don't figure out how to heal like that until we figure out how to heal individually. And it's not uh, tied like a sweet little bow hey, I wanna let you know that I hurt you, would you make amends with me? And then they smile at you and you hug and then you walk away holding hands. <laughs> that rarely happens. I have a friend right now who's doing some coaching with me. Her name is Anna Lucia, she's here tonight. You know what she says sometimes whenever we're on the phone? She says, you need to resist the need to bring closure to everything. And she uses this phrase that has been so powerful for me and Q used it in a piece. He said, I just want you to hold space for it. So you know what I do? is I decide if we're in conflict with each other, okay, are we, are we, are we friends or not? Because if we're not, then I'm never gonna speak to you again, I'm gonna push you out of my life. 
Instead of saying, hey, there's a conflict there and I'd like to bring it to fruition and it's not resolved yet, so I'm not gonna decide if I hate you or if we love each other, I'm just gonna hold space for it because I can. Because it can just be there. Because it can just exist. I have three instances right now where I'm in the process of making amends, two of which I'm in, I'm in the wrong and one of which the other person is in the wrong and I keep trying to give him an opportunity to make it right and he keeps passing on that opportunity. <laughs> I do, I just call and text and just, hey, hoping that it's gonna occur to him that this is something he should do. But with the two that I'm in the wrong, I approach the person and I call the person and I have a conversation with the person. And all I can think in my mind is that this is eventually gonna resolve, but it's not resolving. And it's not getting easier and it's not going away and it's not being in this nice little bow, but you know what I'm doing is I'm holding space and I'm holding that humility of going, I'm here to make amends whenever you're ready. And to this other friend, you'd be so easy he won't make amends and he won't acknowledge and he won't say what he did and he won't acknowledge what he did that so many people, and you know what I do? Is I get, I get insecure about it and I'm like, he should make amends, right? And then I start talking to people and go, this guy did, did me wrong, right? He did me wrong, right? And people are like, yes, he did. And then I'm like, yeah, he really did me wrong. And that doesn't help anybody. Instead, I just hold space for it and I say, whenever he's ready, he's gonna make amends. And you know what I'm gonna be ready for? is great. Because here's what I realized, that the answer to prejudice and the answer to some of these conflicts is the ability to both extend grace and receive grace from people who come to you for amends. Because you can have things in your mind that feel like convictions, except when you meet a person that has that thing, and when you love a person who believes differently, who love a person who's in that group, then it starts to change things for you. So you might feel like cops are this way right now, or black people are this way right now, or people who love Trump are this way right now. Until you love a person who's voting for Trump and then it's gonna question a little something. And then you're gonna love a person who's a police officer, you're gonna love a person who's angry, you're gonna love a person who is violent. And you're gonna have to learn to extend grace to a person who's so different than you and that in itself is a making of amends. It's a holding space for a person who's so different than you. I had this happen recently because um, I've always my entire life had a thing against child molesters. Like my entire life. Anybody with me? <laughs> like people who assault children sexually, I just sort of, um, I feel like a red fire inside myself for that. And I've had it rip through my family so many ways in so many places, and I've always held this hatred for that kind of behavior, and honestly, for those kind of people. And I always thought to myself that there'd be some beautiful, wonderful place where there's some island that if a person has sexually assaulted a child, then they would just go onto that island and then we would just let them sort of handle each other. Let them deal with each other, let them be there. I just had this hatred for what it did and how it ripped through my family and how it hurt so badly the people I love. And then this weird thing happened like two months ago where um, a couple of years ago, and I told you guys this story, or many, many of you have heard this story, I used to have a little brother who was a part of my family and he was taken away because of the foster care system. But he's my brother. I loved him so deeply. And I used to Google him once a month, trying to find this dude. This, everybody lost the addresses and the system wouldn't give us the information. And I couldn't find him anywhere, but I loved this kid like he was my own. And I looked for him and looked for him and looked for him, and one day he shows up on a Google image search. It's a mugshot. And I go, I found him. And I called my family, I go, I found him. And then I started doing some digging and found out that he's in prison for sexual assault of an eight-year-old. And you know what I did immediately is I go, oh no. This is a person I love. 
who just put himself in a category I hate. What do I do with that now? I hold space and I give grace. And you know what I start doing? He's go, but look, what the, look at the life he had. But it was just this moment. It was just this place. He needs help. I got to get there. We got to get him the help he needs. We got to get him the support he needs. See, and never had I ever responded to any story ever like that in my entire life. But all of a sudden, I love a person in the category that I hate. And this is grace. And this is what we need. So here in this room, what I want to invite you to do with me is let's heal the world. Let's heal the world. And we start with a list of people we need to make amends to. Before you leave the room, do you have a person that comes to mind? Someone you go, man, I messed that up with that person. Yeah, I definitely screwed that up. I definitely hooked up with his girlfriend. That's, there's someone in the room, I know you're here. But you might even say, like, I definitely did this. I definitely caused harm to that person. I definitely said those words or built walls to that person, or I definitely did that. I sent an email today having that conversation, going, I know I built walls for you, and I made you climb them, and would you forgive me, and would you release me from this? See, that is how we will begin the change and the healing that our world needs, is that we in this room decide that it starts with the humans we're connected to, and then it spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads, and before long, when the next issue comes, we know how to hold space, we know how to make amends, we know how the words of James describe, we know how to confess to one another and pray for each other that we as a land may be healed. So here's what I'd like to do. We're gonna do some Q&A, but here's what I wanna do. I just wanna say a prayer of confession and amends with you. And if you've never prayed before and if praying's not part of your thing, like Q said, it could be just a moment of meditation where you just take in all the words that we say out loud. Or for you, it may just be an ask. That's all the word pray means is to ask. So it could just be an ask that confession and amends would happen and would come in your life. So if it's your first time praying, and for so many people who come to this night, this is your first time praying, we sometimes close our eyes because it's easier to focus. So I want to invite you to close your eyes with me and let's say a prayer together. God, we confess that we have prejudices. Whether it's rich people at Larchmont Village or people that we cross the street because of the color of their skin and the hoodie they were wearing. And God, in this room... I just ask that you would take all of us and right now bring to mind those people where we can bring amends into our life, where we can bring confession into our life, where we can hold space for in our life. And that God, we would be those who bring grace. Grace where there's anger, grace where there's hatred, grace where there's blindness, grace where there is confusion, grace where there was all the madness. Because as our rabbi said, we're in dark times. And I pray that in this room, together, we would bring the grace that is light. We would be the ones who bring light. I pray for the confessions and the amends that will happen outside this room. And I pray that tonight, we brought light together into this world and that it would spread and spread and spread and we would put out the darkness wherever any of us live. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much for being a part of tonight. Now, we've got a few minutes, and the unst, unst, unst isn't too bad. We've got a few minutes, so there's a microphone. This is my man Reed right here. Can we give it up for my man Reed? 
Uh, Reed is going to walk around. If anybody has any questions, hand shot high in the air, and then you can ask your question, and then uh, our poet and our rabbi shall respond. Hello. Um, is there any point at which God would call us to support or get behind the lesser of two evils? That's a great question, question. Rabbi. If ethics were easy, we would get it right every time. Ethics are gray. They're not black and white. I would suggest that the lesser of two evils is what we do most of the time. We have an urge to do the right thing, and in philosophy that's called deontology, right? The, the, the cry for duty, right? It is my duty to defend white people who are under threat. Do you know 13% of the population is black? Wow, I've got to defend that. That's duty-driven. And it sounds goofy, doesn't it, when I say that? So I think living in the gray and seeking the light is the best that we can do as humans. So I would say, you know, being 30 to 40 years older than most of the people in the room, there have been very few clear black and white decisions in my life. And I watched my mother raise me alone. And it was always the lesser of two evils as she tried to figure that and, and negotiate that. So I think getting comfortable with the tension of trying to do good without hurting the other, that's the trick. And that's why you saw me pause. That wasn't some sort of dramatic. That was, that's where I needed to get to a very fine question. And, and thank, thank you for that question. That was great. Thanks. That's yours. Keep it. You can keep it. That's for you. Next question. Didn't the rabbi do awesome? <laughs> How about our poet, huh? Yeah, right? Come on. Yes. Uh, Who's I your actually, question for? I remember, well, for you or all of you, uh, I remember one of your old sermons where you actually told us to forgive someone before the new year. And I did that, but it didn't give me the closure or it was a messy gray area. So then I just, I guess the lesser of the evil for me was to just let the situation go and to hold the space for him, but to not, you know, continue with it, to not to continue the conversation. So I, I guess I'm asking for you guys, how do you hold space for someone you love when they say, I don't think you should marry who you love, or I, I'm going to vote for Trump because of this, because I've always felt this way. What do you do in that situation? I think, and then I want you guys to answer, I think the moment you actually forgive that person is when you let it go. I don't think whatever closure you were expecting, forgiveness as a whole is really unsatisfying. That's why vengeance is so tasty. That's why violence feels like progress. That's why throwing something at something feels like I did something, except all I did was perpetuate that and then it keeps happening. The, violent, the, the, the forgiveness piece is actually the holding of space. The letting go of something is actually the release of forgiveness. To forgive is to release you of that thing for which you owe me. So now the minute I go, oh, I'm gonna let that go. When, whatever moment, whatever you did before to forgive and it didn't give closure, forgiveness rarely does. 
What gives closure is the ability to take a deep breath and go, I'm gonna constantly just give good vibes, good energy, good peace, good will. It's the word agape. Agape love is what we describe as unconditional love, but in Greek, and, he's gonna, and he can correct me if this isn't right, in Greek, the, def, the definition of that is goodwill. So to give unconditional love is just to say, I just, I'm just gonna keep giving this person goodwill and good energy. That's what it means to release them, to forgive them. Yeah, please. So when do okay the Pastor there, Hank okay. was yeah. uh, talking about this notion of asking for forgiveness by, by release, that's what, uh, you've heard of Rosh Hashanah? So it's a 10-day process. And did you notice that there are no fireworks and not a lot of drinking? And it actually ends with a fast, which is what, no, I'm serious. And Islam imitates that fast, and that's called Ramadan. And they do it for a whole series. So there is a formula when, you know, if I offend you, let's say you and I continue to do this and I say something that's highly offensive to you, you sit on it, but comes Rosh Hashanah, you finally say, Shreibman, you know, here's, or I finally go, oh shoot, I did. Now let's say he's really nasty. I can't control his nest. I can, I can control my reaction to his nest. And the rabbi said, and this is about a 3,000 year old process, annualized, <laughs> if you will. And, and then you would, I would go to him three times and try to make amends. I would try to apologize so he could hear it. The next step is to compensate him in some way. In other words, I, I wronged you to the point that I want to compensate you. I'll buy you dinner, I'll take your family out. You know, soft ice cream can make the world fix itself, okay? And the third one is that I would give charity in your name to something that matters to you. Isn't that interesting? Mm. And then, let's say he's still an SOB. And he won't, and the days are going, right? It's day seven, day eight, nine. I'm about ready to fast. Then you make a pledge to give charity without his consent. And then you picture, this is where I, I got the idea from, from watching your eyes. At that moment, you watch that charity filling the world with light. And then the good Lord's going, that's the best one little bald man can do. You keep it. All right. All right, last question. Any last questions? Hey, guys. Is this on? Hey. All right, hey. Uh, so I got a question that's kind of personal, kind of not... Uh, and I felt like there was this consistent um, message across the board about okay, creating social change uh, and how that starts with your own inner change. Um, I was curious for all of you, uh, what do you feel like personally has been the center of that change? I feel like I've had this conversation with a lot of people who are on, their, on this journey for um, becoming, of becoming like the best version of themselves. Uh, that they can possibly be and for some people it's like letting go of control for some people it's like humility but like where do you guys feel like is your center where do you guys keep coming back to it's hmm. good Q meditation <laughs> the, the point I was trying to make earlier is your whole life is about letting go meditation is a practice of letting go that's why it's really valuable because you basically like watch your thoughts and you watch your emotions and then you let them go and you continue to plug in to the moment. 
over and over and over again. And the more that you do that, the more that your muscle builds. And then when you're in life, when your thoughts and your emotions come, you don't take them so seriously. And you don't take yourself so seriously. And yet you can hear what your true voice is telling you. And your true voice is not going to steer you wrong. Problem is there's so much noise in the way from us hearing our own true voices. So meditation turns down that other noise and very slowly, even if you couldn't hear your voice before, you'll start to hear it as a whisper. And then it'll get louder and louder and louder. Um, you know, but it, it was challenging. It challenged all of the constructs of what I had created my life to be and all of the ways that I valued myself. Kind of threw all those things out the window and then I had to find value uh, in a different place. And I find value here, like in the moment. And everybody's gonna have their own script to what that is. You don't have to do that, of course, but um, yeah, I was thinking today, I think spiritual enlightenment has to do with, like I said, accepting whatever it is that comes up for you and then letting it go. That's it. But in real time, you wanna like shorten the bridge. You wanna burn down the bridge. You want to just feel it and then let it go. Because if you, if you don't acknowledge it or if you try to pretend like it's not that way, it just fucking finds areas of your body to fucking hide in. And then it comes out in other ways in your, in your behavior and in your actions in the world. So I hate shit all the time. I'm like, I fucking hate this shit. And then I'm like, cool. You know, I don't take my hate so seriously anymore. Okay, all right. Yeah, sure. These are very thoughtful concepts that you've raised. So I would say a through line that I've seen in my own life that I think may be at the core of other issues is stop seeing ourselves as victims. Remember earlier in your poetry, you said about letting go, right? People have a choice of what to do. Negation is an action. Silence is an action. So if everybody would let go of their own sense of victimization, the poor me, and that can be personally, because you drag it into your personal relations, and now you can't have sex with somebody that you really like, because you're schlepping that from one relationship to the next. You've done that, yes? Okay? Or the way you interact with somebody, you're gonna be very guarded, you're gonna be very cool, because your feelings got hurt. Well, your feelings got hurt. But if you don't open up again, then you're not gonna have any feelings. That's the same muscle. Right? You have to work the feelings muscle and not be afraid to. And when you get down to cultures and ethnicities and all of that, Sanders was running as a Jewish guy. That's a big thing in Jewish history. That is crazy. And by the way, when Jews are safe, gays are safe. And when gays are safe, blacks are safe. And when Jews and gays and blacks are safe, then women can actually be the leaders. And I don't care who you vote for, really. Vote and have a great time. But you've got to understand that every one of those groups could walk around like wounded warriors or be proud and surmount. My favorite word is surmount. Jews, 
I know the Holocaust. I heard about it. Focus where you are now in history. Are you with me? So every group needs to say that within their own history, and you have to find that inside your own history, your own history, individually. So surmount. And that's why in the Psalms it says, Esa enai el heharim me'ayin yavo ezri. I used that this mm-hmm. when we drove in. The best way to kill religion is inside a synagogue and a church. What does the Psalm say? I lifted my eyes, I looked at the mountain, and that's where I found my strength. So don't go, oh, poor me, and me, me. Lift your eyes up, be proud of what you are, surmount, okay? Really good. I would just say, Ben, I, for me, the, it's the, it like, kind of circles back to me to the teachings of Jesus. And for me, so much of what Jesus described was so much of what these guys just described, which is, if you read through the New Testament, one huge word will come up which is surrender. And it's the surrender of what I thought I was, what I am, a surrender of something you owe me, a surrender of this shame that I carry. It all ends up being surrender. And for me, so much of that is surrendering even the, the world I thought I was gonna live in or the future that I thought I had for myself or the, or the thing. And that's, I think that's what holding space is. I think that's confession. I think that's what Q was talking about in his poems. I think it's what he's talking about with Meditation, I think that's what rabbis inviting us to do is surrendering, yeah, that happened to me, and now I'll step forward. And so much of that is what orient for, orients for me what it means to live on my best self, live who I am. So thank you, Ben, so much. Can we give Ben a round of applause for that? It's so good. Thank you guys so much. You're awesome. We'll be here. You're amazing. We'll be back again in August, and I'll tweet and send out the date and let you know what's going on. Thank you guys so much. We're up here for the hand. guys, well, I hope you enjoyed the pastor, poet, and rabbi. Really glad you were a part of that. We're going to move now into the close, which I've been doing, and I'm now going to position and transition this into my email. So every Friday, you're going to get an email from me that says stuff on my desk. This is the stuff on my desk section of the podcast. And if you've been listening for a while, then you already know that stuff on my desk is where I go through a list of stuff on my desk. Now, If you don't get our emails, I want to invite you to do that first. So this is the first thing is this is going to now be a Friday email. And all you have to do is text 66866 and text the name Hank. Just text Hank to 66866 and you will be prompted to join our email list, which is the easiest way for you to get on board with the stuff on my desk Friday email. Uh, A couple of things that are on my desk right now, and I'll kind of go through these in an unhurried fashion, is the first thing that's on my desk is a tour staff VIP backstage pass to the future now Demi Lovato, Nick Jonas tour. And the reason I have this is because I have been invited, and for some of you, you may have seen that or you may have observed that over text message or um, Instagram or any of the other socials, is I'm actually going on tour with them to manage a thing called the Cast Centers on Tour. So if you go to castcentersontour.com, you can see what that's all about. If you go to demilovato.com, you can see where her tour is. And I'm going on all, nearly the whole tour. There will be about 10, 12 dates that I'm not gonna make it, but I'll be on most of those dates. Interesting thing about that is I'm actually helping curate a speaking tour that goes alongside the Demi Lovato, Nick Jonas, Future Now tour. That speaking tour is called Cast Centers on Tour and it's where people talk about how to live their best life. It's really, really a cool experience. I really would love for you to check it out and go to castcentersontour.com and you can kind of see what it is. That's what I'm gonna be spending a lot of time. So if you follow me on Instagram, which is just at Hank, 
if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see me in 40 cities and you'll see me all over, some with my family, some without my family, some cruising through there and you're gonna know why and that's why I'll be there with Nick and Demi to support their cast centers portion of their tour, which is gonna be really, really exciting and really, really meaningful. So check it out. You can also follow at cast centers or at Mike.Bayer, who's the founder of Cast Centers, who I'll be working directly with. So it's going to be a cool couple of months and a really neat way for me to kind of help invest in whatever's happening there. One of the cool things they invited me to do while we were doing that is they invited me to go on stage and they invited me to pray in Orlando during the concert. And you can actually listen to that here. We'll go ahead and play that for you right now. I want to introduce you guys to somebody extremely special to me and to everyone on this tour. He's with Cast Centers. His name is Hank, and he is going to lead us in a word of prayer, if you guys don't mind. One of which was the most deadly shooting in all of America's history. And so we want to pause in the midst of this exciting night, in the midst of this beautiful night, and we want to pause and we want to say a prayer. A prayer of healing. And for you, a prayer is just an ask. So what I want you to do is I just want to invite you to join us in praying to whatever God is to you. But I'm going to ask that we do this together. So that as we pray together, we will heal together. So if you would, if you can, put an arm around a person near you or put an arm around a person next to you. And we're going to say a prayer together. Close your eyes or look up to the sky and let's pray for healing. God, we thank you that in the midst of this place, we can pause and we can ask for healing. We come to you because we mourn. And some in this room hurt. And some in this room have lost. And God, we gather here because we know you hurt with us. And you mourn with us. And you weep with us. So in this room, we ask for healing. To the people to our right and left, we gather in this room and ask for a healing only you can bring. But God, we know that the only response to hate is love. And we know that the only response to violence is peace. And the only response to evil is good. So we in this room, 10,000 strong in Orlando, we rise up to bring healing and to bring good and to bring love so that death and evil does not have the last word. So that violence does not have the last word, but we 10,000 strong rise up to say that we together will let love win. We pray all of this together, and together we say amen. So that was really exciting, so I will be on... The Demi Lovato Nick Jonas tour, which is fun. So that's the first thing on my desk. Second thing on my desk is a book by a guy named Mike Foster. And I'm not going to tell you the name of the book, and I'm not going to tell you what it's about. I'm just going to tell you that a guy named Mike Foster is writing a book. I have a copy of it, and we are meeting tomorrow to record a podcast because I want to tell you all about it because I love Mike, and I love his work, and I want you to check that out. So look for that in the future. 
Other thing that's on here is I have sitting on my desk a People magazine from last week. And in the, in, on page 73, not that I'm paying that close of attention, on page 73, there is none other than a photo of a couple of adopt-together families and myself. And it's the most generous, it is the most heartwarming, it is the clearest story written about Adopt Together and written about my family and why we started Adopt Together and it's really really beautiful. You can just Google People Magazine Hank Fortner and you'll find this story as well. It's my favorite article about us. So I'd love for you to check that out and I'd love for you to see it but that's on my desk. And then the last thing that's on my desk is actually really cool. This is a menu from a restaurant in LA called Gwen. And the restaurant is started by a guy named Curtis Stone, who you probably see on like the cooking channel and other things like that. And I have a signed menu because we were, Sue Ann and I, the first people ever seated at Gwen Los Angeles. Gwen is one of Curtis's grandmothers and he just opened it up and it's basically a butcher shop. Sorry, vegans. It's a butcher shop meets a high-end restaurant. And it's delicious, and the venue's beautiful. And if you saw it on Instagram, I posted it. And on my Snapchat, I showed it a bunch of things. But we were invited to the friends and family night, and we got to taste pretty much everything. It was extraordinary. So if you're in L.A., or if you're traveling through L.A., you have to at least stop by for the lunch sandwiches. You have to stop by to check it out, because it really is a really cool restaurant. And Curtis is not advertising with me or anything. This is just sheer overflow of the taste bud explosion in my mouth. It's called Gwen, G-W-E-N-L-A. I think you can find it on Instagram as well. And I have a signed copy from Curtis. So that's the stuff that's on my desk. That concludes Typically Hazardous. If you want to find us, go to hankfortner.com or you can go text 66866, the name Hank. And I can't wait to see you in live and in person on August 8th, which will be our next live event. Or I will see you on... YouTube or the socials or in the comment section of anything. I hope you're awesome. Thank you for joining with me. May you live a typically hazardous day.